Welcome to the Rocks Podcast. The book of James brings a nice balance to the other New Testament letters. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. James, on the other hand, reminds us that true faith will produce good works, for faith without works is dead. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this very practical epistle. Now, Heavenly Father, we ask, as we always do before we come before your holy word, These truths are spiritually discerned. We need the Holy Spirit to help us understand, to touch our hearts, to open our eyes, to give us ears that hear and eyes that see and a willing heart to put into practice the truths that you reveal to our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. There's a familiar scene that's about to come up behind me. I love dramatic rescue stories, as most of you probably figured out by my opening illustrations. (laughs) I especially like rescue stories when they have happy endings. And this is a very well-known incident that happened this January that you'll all recall. U.S. Airways flight 1549, bound for Charlotte, North Carolina, was airborne less than three minutes over New York skies, flying directly into a flight path of a flock of geese. There was a loud popping sounds, smell of engine fumes in the cabin, and then an eerie silence, double engine failure. 3,200 feet above New York City, 500,000-pound Airbus 320 with no thrust. 155 people started to say their prayers. Pilot Captain Sullenberger realizes he can't make it back to LaGuardia, nor to any other emergency landing strip, but he does see the Hudson below and down. They glide into the icy waters, 35 degrees. Miraculous splash landing, plane intact, doors open, and shocked passengers maneuver out onto the wings. The plane temporarily afloat in 200 feet of water. They stand and wait. Now here's the intriguing part of the rescue for me and the lead-in to this morning's text. I'll read from the news report now. The passengers scattered on the wing, then walked back toward the fuselage to get onto the fire department's rescue boat. The moment was not without difficulty, drama, and danger, however. Our bow is four feet above the waterline, so the people had to make a little hop to get their chest on the bow, and myself and another firefighter pulled them in. We were able to grab their hand and then say, one, two, three, jump. Johnson said. But we had to cut the motors when the people started panicking a little. 
He said several of the male passengers got impatient with the rescue and they jumped off the wing into the water toward the back of our boat. They were in danger of dying from hypothermia. You can last about eight minutes in water that cold. They were also in danger of being caught in our propellers. So we had to shut the engines and make their rescue priority. How sad it would have been to have survived the plane crash, only to have perished in the water because they had simply lost their patience. Thank you, Joey. Patience, of course, is going to be the subject of this morning's text. Patience, indeed, is a virtue and pretty vital if we're going to live our Christian lives effectively, because without patience, you're not going to have love or joy or peace or contentment. It's going to short-circuit God's intentions if you have impatience. Impatience so very costly and destructive and the root of so many of our troubles in this physical daily life and also spiritually in our Christian lives as well. You know, patience is tough to have. Uh, It isn't easy for any of us. Amen? I like the little, well, whoa. (laughs) I want a big, heartier amen than that. Patience isn't very easy, is it? Amen? Amen. Come on. I've driven behind you. I know all about this. (laughs) No. Yeah, you've been driving behind me. (laughs) Yeah, that would make better sense, especially how I drive. Uh, I like the limerick that says, Patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Found seldom in a woman, never in a man. Does it surprise me or anybody else that the ones jumping from the wing were guys? The women, they have a a little bit more sense than that. So here, it's patience of the spiritual kind that James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, whenever I say James wrote or James is telling us, please know it's a given. That's not James. James is the pen. God is giving him the thoughts and the inspiration. That's a given when I say anything like this, but the Holy Spirit through James is exhorting his readers to have patience in their fiery ordeal that they're suffering. So just for context, verses one through six last week, James has just said, look, Jesus is coming, people. I know you're suffering, but uh, Jesus is coming with fiery judgment to deal with ungodly people who are making life miserable for these poor Christians. And now verses 7 through 11, which will be our text this morning, he turns his attention to the ones suffering at their hands and calls them to hang in there with patience in light of the very same reason, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Really, in essence, he's saying, look, the plane has crashed. (laughs) It's called life. There was a fall. And we're all out on the wing. Now be patient. Go about your business. Do your due diligence. Do what you're supposed to be doing. But no panicking. No panicking. He's coming back. You can be sure of this. Verse 7. Be patient, then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits 
for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers is an example of patience in the face of suffering. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So we're going to pause there and consider these few verses. The Greeks had a race that was very interesting in the Olympic Games, very unique. The winner was not the runner who finished first. It was the runner who finished with his torch still aflame. In order for that to happen, my friend, you'll have to be running with a strategy You'd have to be running with patience because really that's James' whole point for his believers that he's writing to, really pastoring from afar. These folks who are suffering, not necessarily to finish the race first, but to finish their lives well, to have a flame of love left at the end, holiness and zeal for the day that God comes for them or vice versa, that when they see his face, uh, they can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not every Christian is going to hear that. James says, you'll need patience if you're going to finish well. And as Peter said, to receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so really here, the call to, I'm sorry, to suck it up and endure, to have patience really in two categories. One, patience in light of our Lord's soon return, and two, patience in light of godly examples of the prophets and of Job. And so these are going to be our two points, but really the crux of the message is point number one, patience in the light of the Lord's return. So here's the paraphrase, really. He's saying, All right, brothers, in light of what I just told you, that the Lord is coming soon to bring swift justice to the earth, be patient in your current circumstances. So first of all, patience in light of our Lord's imminent return. The word imminent, we don't use a lot. Imminent, momentary, any second. The weather guy says imminent uh, storm watch, that a storm can appear at any second. And this is called the blessed hope that the scriptures tell us that we must live our Christian lives with a heavenly perspective, constantly fixing our eyes and our lives upon the end, which is this, that Christ shall return, that every thought I think, every word I say, every deed I do be measured and shaped and molded By this fact, the Lord will return and I will see him face to face and I will stand before him and give an account of the stewardship of my Christian life. I will stand before him. Our secrets laid there. Psalm, I mean rather, uh, Romans chapter 2 verse 16. Our motives weighed. Proverbs 16 verse 2. Our words recounted in our presence. 
Matthew 12, 36. Our deeds evaluated, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Our faithfulness as Christians reviewed, Matthew 25. And sum it up, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one of us may receive what is due him or her for the things done while in the body, good or bad. And then the writer to the Hebrews, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Very interesting. When I was a teacher at that vocational college, a secular school out in the East Bay, I used to ask people if they were Christians. Not many of them were. But then I'd ask a question, which was always uh, very mystifying to me. I would say, how many of you think you're going to stand before God and give an account of your life? Every hand went up. The hands go up for that. What is that knowledge that God has knit into the fabric of the human soul? That we understand that it was from God we came We have been given life, an investment from God, and then then at the end we return to the one who gave us breath in the first place for an accounting of how we lived the life he gave us. And so at his coming, Christians will be evaluated for their faithfulness at the judgment seat of Christ for good works. That reward ends in eternal life with either reward or loss of reward. You can read 1 Corinthians 3 for that. And at his coming, unbelievers will be judged for their sins. And that is a judgment, the great white throne that ends with eternal loss. You can read Revelation 20, verse 11 for that. So, honestly, here, you know, there are many benefits to to live with the perspective that the Lord's coming is at hand. Many blessings. First uh, John chapter 3. He says, dear friends, now we are children of God. And what exactly it's going to be like, we don't know exactly. But we do know one thing, that when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, when I live with the reality that Christ is coming, that as the Bible says, he's at the door, his hands on the knob. All right. We're going to talk about that in a bit. When I live with that perspective, really, it keeps me on the straight and narrow. He says, everybody who has this hope front and center purifies himself. Well, of course, what kind of fool knowing that, let's say, the property manager gives you a call, says, hey, the owner's really freaked out, wants to come and inspect the place. Sometime tomorrow afternoon, he's going to drop in and just with the clipboard and the white glove, we're coming by heads up. Don't got an exact time sometime tomorrow. What kind of fool would just just let the place go to disrepair? Anybody with an ounce of common sense would say, hey, I don't know the exact hour, but I don't want to be caught humiliated and risk possible censure from the owner in whose home I am living. And so really, the knowing and keeping and nurturing and embracing the fact of his return, or my soon departure to him, helps shape my life's decisions 
in a daily way. Well, many wonderful effects. James is saying in our context, he's saying this beloved fact, this unalterable truth, the Lord's quick return will help you to cope with patience in your current painful ordeal. Now, to me, I've mentioned this before. It's very funny that verses one through six and verses seven through 11, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about the Lord's return. And for one group of people, it's gloom and doom for the bad boys. And for another group of people, the same future event, joy and relief for those who are captive. Now, you know, in a similar way, I was thinking, you know, take a hostage crisis. Uh, Sirens are sounding. The police show up. It's gloom and doom for the bad boy. And it's joy and relief to the hostage. You see, James is saying, listen, you who are oppressed and troubled and in a tight circumstance, the the trumpet is going to sound and Christ is going to appear and you will be rescued. Now have patience. The sky will light up and everybody and every eye shall see. Paul echoes this refrain to the Thessalonians. Listen to this. God is just, he says. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. He's talking about the last days, Armageddon, the great tribulation. He's saying to the folks there, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. Be patient. Be patient. He will take care of things. This is his earth. You belong to him. Your problems are even his concern. So be patient. Don't jump off the wing. Don't get uh, impulsive. Sit tight. Hold steady. Hang tough. Live right. Stay on the straight and narrow path. No swerving. One little swerve will cost you your marriage, your career, your kids. One swerve. Well, I've been good all my life. I'm just going to swerve this one time. I can't take it anymore. You're dead, man. You ruin a lifetime of achievement by one impulsive move. You survive a plane crash and you just can't wait to get in the boat. Come on. Throw it all away because why? You're impulsive? He says, could you just keep it at the, at the front and center of your mind that God is coming back and he's going to take care of all of this? Chill. Now, that's in the Greek. It's hard to find the the (laughs) chill word. And the reason it's hard to find is because it's not there. (laughs) So moving on. Listen, he says, look, three great words in the New Testament for the Lord's coming. Epiphania, which where we get the word epiphany, which means of hearing. Apocalypsis which means to unveil or to reveal. Of course, the last book of the Bible is named this in the Greek. 
parousia, which means coming or entrance, the physical presence of a king. 300 times or one in every 13 verses, the New Testament talks about the second coming of Christ. The, the New Testament, as well as the Old, oozes with the return of Jesus Christ to judge the ungodly, to bring relief to his people, and to, uh, b- to establish a reign on this earth, which, which his people will assist him with in glory and honor and praise. Now, James says what everybody else says in the Bible about this coming. He says, you can be patient. It's near. Now, when you say near, it's a relative term. All right? So God's perspective on time, of course, as we all know, Second Peter chapter 3, he says, you know what, folks? Everybody's scoffing. Yeah, everybody said, you know, the Lord's going to return. And it's been like that since our father and their father. And come on. He says, first of all, God's timetable is different than yours. To God, one day, thousand years. He's been gone two days from God's perspective of time. Now, Ken Hughes, a commentator I really enjoy, especially on the book of James, he gives an illustration that helps me understand how to think when, the, when Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. And, and, and when James says, look, the Lord's near. Gives me a, I love this illustration. He says, the mayfly. Now, the mayfly has a lifespan of one day. That's it. That's all that little mayfly thankfully gets, in my humble opinion. Not a real fan of flies. And, and so <laughs> they only get one day. Now, if you said to that mayfly, uh, see those tadpoles? You're hovering over a little pool. You see the little tadpoles. Uh, they're going to be frogs soon. Well, let's say the little mayfly is waiting to see the little tadpoles become flies in his long life. He gets to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. His life's almost over. He looks down and goes, soon? The tadpoles are going to be frogs? Who are you kidding me? You know, who are you kidding me? (laughs) That's what we say in New York. We say, who are you kidding me? (laughs) Who are you kidding me? They're not going anywhere. Listen, Mayfly, you know what? We... Humans define time a little bit different than you little specks of nothing, all right? So from our point of view, a higher being than you, we look at that and go, the tadpole is going to be a frog soon. But from your point of view, no way, that's an eternity away. Well, God looks at our little mayfly existence and says, I'm coming soon for to him. Looking down on our Mayfly experience, the Lord is like, it's been a couple days in comparison to eternity past. God was and is and is to come. But he says, I'm the beginning, folks. Before the world was, I had eternal years that way. And I will have eternal years this way from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. Now, you want to talk about 7,000 earth years? <laughs> the Lord's like, what's that? I'm coming soon. I am coming soon. No one knows exactly that day or hour, says the Son of God. 
Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but that's the Father's business. Just like in the, no, in the days of Noah, that's what the coming of Christ will be like. Right before the flood, people were carrying on business as usual, going out to dinner, having a few drinks, having parties, going to weddings, right up until the day Noah and his family went aboard. No one had a clue what was coming until the flood was upon them and swept them all away. Noah was preaching, by the way, the whole time he was building that ark. But they didn't have a clue because they weren't listening. That's exactly what it's going to be like when I come, says the Lord. Two men will be working in a field. One goes, one stays. Two women working in an office. One goes, one stays. Therefore, it's a good idea to keep watch because you don't know the day your Lord will come. But you know one thing. He will come. And he says, when you see the leaves, the buds getting soft and ready to open, he says, could you realize I'm right there? So he gives general signs and he says, and natural disasters, world economies going crazy, uh, intense uh, opposition to his people Israel. These are all signs given, uh, wars and rumors of wars, the bloodiest battle yet just occurred in Afghanistan. The Middle East on fire, <laughs> the world economy collapsing, and we live in a day and age where the coming of the Lord is, from God's point of view, seconds away. Amen? Amen. Yeah, you needed to say amen there. It was really, I heard it coming. Go ahead. Good. Patience. Patience and patience. You know, when he comes back, folks, or when I die, whichever it's going to happen, because one of that's going to happen to you and to me, I want to be doing something noble. I don't want to be whining the time the trumpet goes off, and what am I doing? Whining and complaining about something. I don't want to be embroiled in some stupid battle with somebody or having one of those dumb bickering things with my wife, which is always my fault, by the way. <laughs> Just say, what, what's all the amening suddenly? Oh, suddenly we're all amen, sister. I don't want to hear the trumpet while I'm saying, you did too, did not, did too. I really don't. I don't want to be spiritually goofing off. I want to be standing in Starbucks with my Bible open and having somebody say, this is the most ridiculous book I've ever seen. And then, boom, that's what I want. I want to go out that way. And maybe, if they're nice, I'll grab onto one of them and drop them. Whoops, just kidding, JK. All right, we better move on. All right, so James pulls from the world they live in to say, this is what I'm talking about. Listen to me. You guys, paraphrasing, you guys of all people know about patience. You work the land. You wait patiently for the crops to ripen, and you wait patiently for the rain to, in the fall and the spring. You're actually pretty accustomed to waiting for things. Now just wait for the Lord in the same way. And so 
James is pointing out here as we looked at these verses, look, it's not like you have a whole lot of other options. Think about it, because you really don't. You have no control. Let's talk about farming, since you practically all of them were an agrarian society. He says, you know, come on, farmers. You can do your thing. You, you plant the seed. You water it. You nurture it. You, you put a little fertilizer. And then what do you do for four months? You have to wait. There's nothing you can do. Wheat crops require 120 days. Period. You, you can get in fights with the other farmers. You, you could sing. You can dance. You can kvetch, which is a nice Jewish little term for uh, complaining. Uh, you can do whatever you want. You want to have a sleepless night? Go ahead. It's not going to affect you. can't control when he's coming back or when you're going to him. So you need to wait. I told you about telling the lady at Starbucks, she goes, I am so sorry for the wait. And I said, you know what? I'm just hanging around waiting for the Lord. You know, I told you about that. It just, you know, honestly, if you're thinking that, it really is a comfort. Really gives you a lot of grace. All I'm doing is I'm on the wing I'm doing what God has called me to do, helping passengers get in the lifeboat. This is my gig. That's my job. That's what I'm called to do. It's not that we do passive things or we just sleep waiting for the Lord. We are actively involved in doing what we're supposed to be doing. It's just to suddenly stop because of our problems or our pressures that he's talking about. So he says, no control over the growing crops, no control over the rain. They're going to come when they come. So he's saying, listen, spiritual application. God's seed is planted in your heart. It was good soil. It germinated. You have new life. Now you're waiting For God's seed, God's life in you, nurtured by the Holy Spirit and and you cooperating, but you're just waiting, waiting on the Lord for that to come to fruition and for God's kingdom to ripen. And then the harvest, he says, that day will come. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house for you. I am going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me. Patience. 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 I read a little funny thing, a little Reader's Digest thing. A guy was writing, one afternoon I took my children to the movies, my son Scott who was seven years old at the time, was anxious for the movie to get going. But as the different ads came on and all the trailers and what have you, Scott leaned over and whispered, Dad, when's the movie going to start? In a few minutes. One minute later, he said again, Dad, when is the movie going to start? In just a little bit. Then it came again like a machine gun. Dad, when is the movie going to start? Over and over again. After the fourth or fifth time, I said, Scott... Don't ask me that question again. Just sit there and wait. My son, who is a quiet and obedient child, fidgeted and tried to be patient. Finally, he leaned over and whispered a different question. Dad, 
Can you make the time go faster? <laughs> Listen, all of us, we pray, we're in situations. God says, look, entrust it to me. I'll carry your burdens. You're giving me your burdens. Cast them upon me. I'll take care of you. And we say, are we there yet? Is it, is, it, is it tomorrow morning? Is it now? Is it this afternoon? Is it in 45 minutes? And God says it doesn't happen overnight. Be patient. Well, can you make it speed up faster? He says, my time is the best. Slow your bad self down and get into God's timetable. He doesn't do things on our schedules. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but I have. So he says, really, James is saying, stand firm. You really need to stand firm. Now, sad reality, James believers were already in throwing themselves into the icy waters. Uh, they were jumping off the wing, panicking because of the turmoil in their lives. Uh, we know this because of, you know, what we've just been through in James. These guys were messed up. They were envying and fighting and resentment and quarreling and bickering and caving to temptation. So verse 9 says, don't grumble against each other or God will have to discipline you. Now, here's, what, here's what's going on. It's one thing to be flying at 30,000 feet in a... In a um, Pressurized cabin. That's the word I was looking for. You know, listening to your music and snacking on peanuts. Everything's at peace. The hum of the engines. The passengers are all orderly. Their stewardess is in charge. And it's a whole nother thing to be on that wing. Relationally. And we're on the wing in this fallen world where things don't go as planned. There's always mistakes, always insults, always mix-ups, always delays, always weakness, always sin, always falling short. And it's hard to live in that kind of reality. So James says, would you stop in light of God's soon coming? See all of this little stuff as what it is. It's the little stuff and you're sweating the little stuff in comparison to the trumpet of heaven going off and the sky lighting up and Christ returning an eternal kingdom coming. He says, live with that regard. Two words for patience that are very important to help us to be able to do just that. One is the Greek word macro through male, which means two words together, long emotion. In other words, it's the patience that is used for people, generally. And it means to be long-fused with unreasonable, difficult, antagonistic people. It means a steeled self-restraint that does not try to get even. It's what Proverbs 19.11 is talking about when he says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. You see, patience is helping you not to take every last thing personally. Patience helps me to love people, to put up with irritation and delays and mistakes and offenses, to be gracious, merciful, and loving, to give people the benefit of the doubt, 
second chances to get things right, to let love cover a multitude of sins, to sympathize instead of criticize, to pray for people instead of slander them, to love more, to listen better, to put myself in their shoes, to humble myself, to apologize, to cut people slack, and patiently walk with imperfect people. That is what macro through meo means. Not this silly word that we think of in English, to have more patience. This is a warrior, godly character found in the Godhead. No man or woman possesses this quality. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, meaning the only place on this planet that you're ever going to find that quality is in him. And if he doesn't give that to you, you will not possess it. You may have a little willpower here and there, but you'll never be able to do the things that I just listed without the assistance of the one whose very nature is long-fused. That is who he is, slow to anger. He's not a hothead. He's not capricious. He's not impulsive. And he puts up with a lot. It's the kind of patience when they were accusing him and uh, trying him, where Peter says when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23. That is Jesus modeling macro thumeo. The second and final word for patience, hupomone, in the Greek, Two words, we've talked about this a lot, to remain under. Now, you know, whenever you say, Lord, help me with patience, just know that you're, you're saying to him, help me stay under this. It means you're not escaping. You're not moving to Louisiana. I'm sorry if you are and not calling you out. I'm just talking off the top of my head. You're not moving away because you can't take it anymore. You're jumping off the wing. If God tells you, jump, here I am, then we jump. But apart from that, the patience to stay on the cross. When they're nailing you and Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And to endure those six hours, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? He's, he's showing you the second patience there, who pomene, to remain under until God's will is done. And when God's will is done, then we come out gold, golden, strengthened, and to his glory. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the word there, the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And so I told you that's the crux of the message, just a little PS here, living in light of some very godly examples. James is saying, hey, you know, live in light of the Lord's return. He's coming. He's going to take care of you and this. Also live in light of some very godly examples. And he's talking to Jewish Christians And he calls out the Bible heroes as exhibit B. And he says, look at the Old Testament prophets. Look at Job, who were doing God's will. They were suffering. 
in God's will. Good guys, heroes. We can take them as examples. Here's the paraphrase. You guys, listen. Think about our brothers, the prophets, and all they patiently went through for our Lord. We look to them as our heroes. Let's be like them and wait as they waited upon the Lord. Now, folks, listen. When you don't fit in, when you march to a different drummer, when you love what the world despises and despise what the world loves, you're going to need patience. Things are going to get a little tight out there, even at Thanksgiving with your own families. You don't have to open your word, a mouth. You don't, let me try that again. You don't have to say a thing. They see you coming. You represent there's a God, there's a heaven, there's a hell, and I'm not living right with him before you open your mouth. That's why we don't always have to open our mouths. We can just sit there, live in love, be kind and gracious. But, you know, folks, you're going to need patience because you don't have to say a thing to get in trouble. You, you know, uh, uh, honestly, uh, you know what? I have worked a job most of my ministry, a full-time secular job. I know what it's like to be a Christian in the workplace. Uh, I couldn't even have a Bible on my desk as a teacher. I couldn't have any religious plaques or any scriptures or proverbs. I had a couple proverbs up there, and I said, you know what? It's not so much a scripture. It's a proverb. It's an ancient proverb for crying out loud. Oh, no, we can't have that. Oh, you can't talk about God in your graduation speech or you can't give God any glory or praise. You can't even wear a cross around your neck in some institutions. You're going to need patience because it's tough out there. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Not when we hang on our refrigerators. <laughs> But it is a promise. You know, just love to be encouraged. Uh, you try to live for Christ, you will be persecuted. So he says, think about how they did it. Noah was inviting people to safety. They mocked him. Lot was living in relationship with God in Sodom, and he was daily distressed, the scriptures tell us. Saul hunted down David like, like some animal, from hill to hill to cave to cave, dodging spears, uh, hunted, slandered. And what did, what, what did they do? He just endured. He said, I'm not going to throw a spear back at that crazy king. He's in God's hands. And he just avoided taking his life in his own hands and retaliating. King David, he is the poster child for a godly response to an untenable situation. When somebody's crazy and going after you, what did he do? He said, that's God's business to protect me from him. God's business to bring justice to him. I shall not sin by taking matters into my own hands. Patience. You're going to need patience for that. Because, I mean, in 10 minutes, we just want to hire an attorney. No offense to anybody who's an attorney in here. <laughs> and... Uh, there's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself if you're led by the Holy Spirit through prayer and counsel and all of those good things. 
But so watch out. He says, look at Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, the patience. They say, you know what? Bow. They say, you know what? No. Well, then we're going we're gonna to turn up the fire. And so the king says, tell you what, I'll make a deal. I just turned up the flame seven times. Now, I hear you not bowing out there, but now you're here with me. I'm going to give you a second chance. Okay? Hotter fire, but I'm going to give you a little grace. I'm going to play the music. You're going to bow, and then you can go on your happy way. And they say, oh, king, listen to us. The God we serve, he's able to save us from that fire. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing. Patience, endurance, to be harassed like that and thrown into the fire, but rewarded. Queen Jezebel wickedly persecuting the prophets and Elijah, Jeremiah being thrown into stocks, into prison and and lowered into a miry dungeon. Yet they all, all of these guys, listen, this is the point. They stayed the course. They didn't jump off the wing. They didn't shake their fist at God and say, I served you all of these years. How could you? Then he brings out the elephant gun, Job. He says, consider Job. Nobody on the planet can ever say, look what I had to endure because Job is God's trophy. He lost everything, his 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 beautiful sons and daughters in a tragic accident. In one day, gone. All your sons, all your daughters, dead. And then fire everywhere, destroys everything. All his wealth in one day, gone. And then a dreaded creeping disease in his body, painful and loathsome. Health, gone. Wealth, gone. Family, gone. And his wife says, why don't you just kill yourself, old man, you fool? And he says, naked, I came into this world. Naked, I'm going out. The Lord gives, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet shall I trust him. And the Bible says in all of this, Job did not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing. Therefore, James says, can we talk about Job? You guys are in Disneyland compared to his suffering. (laughs) All right? And if Job can sit there and say, I'm going to patiently wait 38 chapters. (laughs) And he did. He had a lot to say. He cursed the day he was born, but he never cursed the Lord. You see, he waited. James says, look at that man. What do you think God let that happen to that man for? So for all of time and eternity, we could say, oh, but I don't have it as bad as him, and he handled it right, and I'm going to model my life and my suffering after that man, because why? Through patience, endurance, the latter half of Job's life was more blessed than the beginning. And that's always the way it is. James says, be patient. You jump, now you lose. You sit through 38 chapters or however many chapters God has for you through this, remain under it. And you, as Job said, after he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Those are his words. He said, I just have to wait and I just have to trust. 
And then it says, let, let me read the last part of Job. After Job had prayed for his friends, because 38 chapters, his friends are going, what'd you do? All right, what'd you do? And Job's like, I didn't do anything. Yeah, you did. There are 38 chapters. And so God says, uh, listen, Job's friends, he really didn't. And I'm not real pleased with you, bugging him for 38 chapters. And now I'm going to have my, my servant Job pray for you, and I'll forgive you. After Job prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him. And at his house, they comforted him. They brought him gold and, and, and uh, earrings and pieces of silver and uh, comforted him. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. So you know what? It means not a lot to us, but if I started saying he had 14 summer homes and, and 13 cars, and yeah, you get it? That's what he's saying. He's saying this guy was blessed, and then he goes way better than that. He says he also had seven sons and three daughters. Nowhere in all the land where they're found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers, which is unheard of. It's just this over-the-top, abundant blessing thing. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and he died old and full of years. And James says, come on, patience. It will pay off. You can't compare to what that man went through. And if he did with that kind of loss and was rewarded like that, how much more you? If it worked for Job and the Old Testament prophets, my friend, it will work for you. If it worked for the Son of God, who was patient with people, and he was patient with the cross of things and situations, it will work for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these few verses that just pack such a punch of truth. The Lord is near, and we need to live in light of that truth and be encouraged to be patiently waiting and doing the Father's business. God, forgive us for for wasting precious seconds and moments for the world teeters at the edge of eternity. And you're coming so much closer than it was before, even closer than when we started this service. Help us, Lord, to live wisely and patiently. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.